Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today's podcast is coming out on July 17th, 2019, which is the 75th anniversary of the Port Chicago disaster. This was the worst stateside disaster in the United States during World War II. And then apart from being just a horrific tragedy, the disaster itself and its aftermath were just threaded through with racism and injustice from beginning to end. And this is also a listener request we've gotten from a lot of folks, including Larry, Jeff, Nicholas, Michael, William, Sarah, and Joanne. So for a little bit of background, the Port Chicago Naval Magazine was on the Sassoon Bay, roughly 40 miles, that's about 64 kilometers, northeast of San Francisco. After Japanese forces attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in 1941, it became clear that the Navy's existing facility at Mare Island wouldn't be enough to meet wartime needs on its own. Port Chicago was built not far away to help fill that gap. The first ship was loaded there almost exactly a year after the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 8, 1942. Port Chicago instantly became a major supply point for the U.S. Pacific Fleet, and its main purpose was to move munitions. Everything from bullets to bombs was sent to Port Chicago by rail. Then the boxcars would be stored behind concrete barricades until it was time to load their contents onto a ship that was waiting at the pier. At first, loading details were filling one ship at a time, but in May of 1944, the pier was widened to allow for two ships to be loaded simultaneously. In July of 1944, 1,800 men were working at the Port Chicago Naval Magazine. There were white officers, marine guards, and civilians. The civilians were mostly skilled workers, like crane operators and locomotive engineers. And there were also 1,431 black enlisted men, most of whom were in their late teens or early 20s, and they worked on loading details. This racial segregation, where everybody in one job was black and everybody in another job was white, that was pretty standard for the U.S. Navy in 1944. The Navy didn't allow black men to enlist at all from 1919 to 1941. At that point, the only black men in the Navy had been in the Navy from before that and were allowed to stay until they retired. After 1941, once the Navy began allowing black recruits, all of the black recruits to the Navy were assigned to the Messman's Service. So that is cooking, serving food, and clearing tables. Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox felt that assigning black men to other parts of the Navy would, quote, provoke discord and demoralization. But after a lot of advocacy from civil rights organizations, he announced that black men would be allowed into the Navy under any enlistment rating that they qualified for, That announcement came on April 7th of 1942. But even then, Black men didn't really have equal opportunities in the Navy. They could not be commissioned officers, and they were primarily assigned to do manual labor, regardless of what they were qualified or trained to do. And that was exactly how things worked at Port Chicago. There were a few Black petty officers who essentially worked as crew foremen, but otherwise, Black enlisted men were doing manual labor while reporting to white officers. The segregation at Port Chicago also went beyond rank and work assignments. The Black enlisted men had a separate barracks, which was closer to the pier than the white men's barracks. Everyone used a common mess hall, but the Black men had to wait until the white men were finished before they could use it. The black seamen also didn't have a lot of opportunities for recreation because the port didn't have its own recreation facility until shortly before the disaster, was badly damaged in the disaster. 
The nearest town that was also called Port Chicago was very small, and it did not particularly welcome the black men from the Navy. Working at Port Chicago was a high-pressure situation. Loading details worked in eight-hour shifts, 24 hours a day. And the typical work cycle moved through three days of loading, a duty day that involved some kind of other work or maybe a training session or a lecture. Then there were three more days of loading and then a day off. So in each eight-day period, each man worked for seven days, including six eight-hour days of loading. In addition to this 24-hour work cycle, the loading details were expected to work as fast as possible. On average, the men in Port Chicago were loading 8.2 tons of munition per hatch per hour. Port Chicago was a sub-command of Mare Island, and Captain Nelson Goss was in command there. Goss set a goal of 10 tons per hatch per hour. That was more than any of the other Navy facilities were managing, and that was more than professional civilian stevedores could do. So the officers also created an increasingly competitive spirit among all the loading details. In the words of Seaman First Class Joseph Randolph Small, known as Joe, quote, we were always in competition to see which division could load the most ammunition in one eight-hour shift. In April of 1944, Captain Merrill T. Kinney started the practice of posting each shift's total. The expectation was that when you came on duty, you would do everything you could to beat that number. There were also reports of officers placing bets against one another about whose details could load the fastest. This made the atmosphere at the pier extremely fast-paced and even chaotic. Boxes of ammunition and small bombs and other smaller items were often passed hand-to-hand, bucket-brigade style, Large bombs were rolled down inclines or moved with hand trucks or electric mules. Loads of munitions would be lowered through the ship's hatches in big cargo nets, and then the men unloaded the nets and stacked up their contents in the hold. It was really common during this process for the bombs to collide with each other or with the walls of the hold or to be dropped for short distances. Men also did things like using crowbars to shove bombs into place when they were too high for them to reach. The men who were carrying out all this high-speed work had virtually no training in how to do it. They got a little instruction on the basics of loading and unloading, but they got almost none in how to safely handle ammunitions and explosives. The same was true for the officers that they reported to, most of whom were reservists who had been called up to active duty. They had almost no experience handling munitions either, along with very little training in how to command enlisted men. Although many of the items being loaded were safe, even if they were handled roughly, there was still inherently hazardous work involved, and even a small accidental detonation could be catastrophic. The Navy itself also had no loading manual covering this type of work. The only standards that the men at Port Chicago had to go on came from an Interstate Commerce Commission guide that was really about moving small amounts of munitions during peacetime. There was a Coast Guard detail who was supposed to be on site to ensure that the safety regulations that did exist were being followed, but the leadership at Port Chicago thought that detail was unnecessary. So virtually everyone involved with moving munitions at Port Chicago was learning by doing, with a focus that was on speed rather than safety. The International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union repeatedly raised concerns about this whole thing and had offered to provide training for Port Chicago's loading details, but that offer was apparently ignored. Captain Goss had also made it clear that he didn't want to contract with civilian stevedores to do this work. He thought that they were too expensive and that their unions were going to be a pain to deal with. He also had a poor opinion of civilian stevedores in general. 
Many stevedores were black or Filipino, and in his words, quote, most of the men obtainable from these races do not compare favorably with those of the white race. He wasn't happy when he learned that the enlisted men at Port Chicago would all be black. Multiple men working at Port Chicago in 1944 also reported raising concerns about safety and being told that the munitions that they were handling weren't live. They were told things like there were no detonators in place, so therefore these things couldn't explode no matter how they were handled. This did lead to a sense of complacency at times, especially because time went on without a serious incident. To be clear, this was unquestionably critical work. It made a meaningful difference to the U.S. war effort in the Pacific, and someone needed to do it. Many of Port Chicago's enlisted men expressed a sense of pride and accomplishment for their ability to keep these materials moving quickly. But it was not the work that they had been trained to do. They had gone through basic training to be sailors, but instead, they were working as stevedores while being paid much less than they would be if they were civilians. And many expressed a sense of foreboding that at some point, all of that rushing around was going to get somebody killed. The disaster that occurred on July 17th of 1944 was probably worse than any of the men imagined. We'll get to that after a sponsor break. Two ships were at Port Chicago on the evening of July 17th, 1944. The SSEA Bryan had arrived on July 13th, and by the 17th, its hold was about half full. It was loaded with about 5,000 tons of explosives, including about 1,780 tons of high explosives. Then there was the SS Quinault Victory. That arrived at about 6 p.m. on the 17th and was being prepared for loading. The actual load was scheduled to start about midnight. Both ships were also carrying their fuel for the voyage across the Pacific, and there were 16 boxcars at the pier, which contained 430 tons of explosives that were waiting to be loaded onto the ships. At 10.18 p.m., two explosions ripped through the port, about six seconds apart, punctuated by a series of smaller explosions. One shift of men had just gone to bed at 10 p.m., and survivors who were still awake said the first explosion was so bright that it looked like sunrise. Seismographs in Berkeley recorded this as an earthquake that measured 3.4 on the Richter scale. 320 men were killed instantly. This included every person who was on duty at the pier or on the ships that were docked there. The blast itself was also so powerful that only 51 sets of remains were ever identified. About 400 other military personnel were injured as well as some civilians. Because the port's sick bay was destroyed, survivors had to be evacuated to other military facilities in the area. 202 of the 320 men who were killed were black. That's about two-thirds of the fatalities. And 233 of the people injured, or about two-thirds, were black as well. This one disaster accounts for 15% of the casualties among black servicemen in World War II. The black men killed were all munitions loaders. The white men killed included the crews of both of the ships, the armed guards who were stationed there and at the pier, several officers and some civilians, including three civilian civil service employees of the U.S. Navy. For listeners who have heard our classic episode on the Halifax disaster, which also involved a munitions ship that exploded in a port, the destruction from this explosion is going to sound eerily familiar. The black sailors' barracks sustained heavy damage. Many of the men who were seriously injured were in their bunks at the time, and the Bryan was essentially obliterated. It was destroyed so completely that almost none of its wreckage was ever recovered. The Quinault was destroyed as well, with its largest piece of wreckage blown 500 feet into the bay. 
This piece of the ship was also rotated 180 degrees in the blast and flipped upside down. An Air Force pilot reported seeing flaming metal debris the size of suitcases flying past his plane. The damage extended far beyond the pier. Some of the boxcars containing munitions were destroyed and others caught fire. Several men who arrived on the scene had to fight this fire by climbing onto the burning cars, which were still filled with explosives, and running hoses through the holes that were created by falling debris. Several men were awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal, which is the Department of the Navy's highest non-combat medal for fighting this fire. One was pharmacist mate third class John Andrew Haskins Jr., who was the first black member of the hospital corps to earn this award. Captain Kenny was also awarded the Bronze Star. The town of Port Chicago, about a mile inland, was heavily damaged as well. 195 people in the town's movie theater managed to escape before that building's roof caved in after being struck by debris. Shrapnel was flung for miles, and a chunk of steel weighing about 300 pounds, that's roughly 136 kilograms, landed in the middle of Main Street. The disaster caused an estimated $12 million in property damage. And the effects went on and on. Coast Guard vessels that were out in the bay were nearly swamped by a wall of water that was thrown up by the blast. Crews had to search the landscape for unexploded ordnance for miles. The town of Port Chicago's only grocery store was heavily damaged, and most of its stock had to be discarded. Windows were shattered for at least 15 miles, or 24 kilometers, from the site of the blast. This was, obviously, an incredibly traumatic event for everyone who worked at the port, as well as those in the town of Port Chicago and their friends and families. But there were immediate disparities in how that trauma was handled. White officers who asked for it were granted 30 days of leave. Black seamen who made the same request were refused, and they were instead tasked with the cleanup and recovery effort, which included handling the remains of people that they had known and been friends with. A memorial was scheduled for July 30th, and the Navy asked for the families of each of the men who had been killed to be given $5,000. But after learning that so many of the men who were killed were Black, Mississippi Congressman John Rankin insisted that that amount be reduced to $2,000. Congress eventually agreed on a $3,000 settlement. In the immediate aftermath of the disaster, officers, including Captain Kinney, praised the conduct of the enlisted men who helped with the recovery effort and cleanup. Rear Admiral Carlton H. Wright said, quote, I am gratified to learn that, as was to be expected, Negro personnel attached to the Naval Magazine Port Chicago performed bravely and efficiently in the emergency at the station last Monday night. These men, in the months that they served at that command, did excellent work in an important segment of the district's overseas combat supply system. As real Navy men, they simply carried on in the crisis attendant on the explosion in accordance with our service's highest traditions. But the tone changed drastically, very quickly, once the Navy started investigating the incident. A Naval Court of Inquiry was convened on July 21, 1944, with three senior Naval officers and a judge advocate presiding. Testimony went on for 39 days. They heard from 125 witnesses, only five of whom were Black. And much of the Navy's testimony was inherently racist, claiming, contrary to what had just been said, that the men had not been provided with more training because they were not capable of learning. Officially, the Court of Inquiry found no one specifically at fault for the disaster and listed eight different possible causes for the blast, including munitions being handled too roughly, failure of loading gear, and sabotage. 
but it also heavily implied that the munitions loaders who had been killed bore most of the blame. To quote the judge advocate, quote, the consensus of opinion of the witnesses and practically admitted by the interested parties is that the colored enlisted personnel are neither temperamentally or intellectually capable of handling high explosives. As one witness has stated, 60% of the lowest intellectual strata of the men sent out of Great Lakes were sent to Port Chicago. These men, it is testified, could not understand the orders which were given to them, and the only way they could be made to understand what they should do was by actual demonstration. It is an admitted fact supported by the testimony of the witnesses that there was rough and careless handling of the explosives being loaded aboard ships at Port Chicago. Just a few weeks after the disaster at Port Chicago, many of the surviving men were ordered back to work. And we're going to get to what happened after that, after we pause for another quick sponsor break. In the days after the explosion at the Port Chicago Naval Magazine, the surviving enlisted men were traumatized and on edge. Everyone was, obviously, but these men were increasingly also anxious about the idea of returning to the same job under the same conditions as before. To many of them, some kind of major incident had seemed inevitable, and now almost a third of them were injured or dead, and the survivors had gotten no explanation of what caused the accident or how to prevent the same thing from happening again. A lot of the men looked up to Joe Small, who at 23 was older than many of them. He also struck people as intelligent and willing to stick up for them. So as it started to seem increasingly likely that they were going to be put back to work loading munitions, several of the men asked Small what he was going to do. Small said that he wouldn't go to work loading munitions again, and he and several of the men drafted a petition asking to be transferred to some other duty, but they never gave it to anyone. And then on August 9, 1944, 328 men who had been moved to Mare Island Navy Yard were ordered to go back to work loading munitions. The details on this are a little unclear. Officers maintained that they gave a direct order, while the enlisted men maintained that they were marched toward the loading pier and stopped when they realized where they were going. Regardless of that detail of whether a formal order was officially given, more than 250 men refused to return to loading the ships. Many of them said they were willing to follow any other order that they were given. Others said that they would start loading again if they got some training. Some wanted new officers pinning the blame for the disaster on that constant pressure to load as fast as they could. Several wanted to be transferred somewhere that they could do the kind of work that they had been trained to do after joining the Navy so that they could be sailors rather than stevedores. They made it clear that they were willing to risk their lives in combat. They were just not willing to return to work under the exact same conditions that had just caused the deaths of hundreds of men. In Small's words, quote, I wasn't trying to shirk work. I don't think these other men were trying to shirk work. But to go back to work under the same conditions with no improvements, no changes, the same group of officers that we had was just... We thought there was a better alternative. On August 11th, Admiral C.H. Wright spoke to the men who were refusing to work. He let 25 or so of them explain what their grievances were, and in his account, they did so, quote, freely and respectfully. 
But his response to them was to say, quote, they tell me that some of you men want to go to sea. I believe that's an expletive lie. I don't believe any of you have enough guts to go to sea. I handled ammunition for approximately 30 years, and I'm still here. I have a healthy respect for ammunition. Anybody who doesn't is crazy. But I want to remind you men that mutinous conduct in time of war carries the death sentence, and the hazards of facing a firing squad are far greater than the hazards of handling ammunition. The men saw this as a death threat, and 208 of them agreed to go back to work. Instead, they were imprisoned in a barge in the bay, and once they were released, they faced summary courts-martial. They were discharged for bad conduct and forfeited three months of pay. On August 13th, Captain Goss gave a written report to Admiral Wright in which he said that there were, quote, agitators, ringleaders among these men, and that that had been the case since the black seamen were first assigned to Port Chicago. Goss also considered himself to be an expert on, to use his term, Negroes, and he described the black sailors at Port Chicago as unusually argumentative and sensitive about discrimination. He maintained that, quote, extreme care and patience has been exercised both at Mare Island and Port Chicago to avoid discrimination, and he recommended that the 50 men who were refusing to work be charged with mutiny. And that's exactly what happened. Some of the 50 men were still refusing to work. Others were perceived as ringleaders of the work stoppage. And a few maintained that they were neither. They were just being punished because they were disliked. These men, nicknamed the Port Chicago 50, faced trial before a panel of officers starting on September 14, 1944. The trial was held at Treasure Island Naval Base. Admiral Hugo S. Osterhaus presided over the seven-man trial board. All of the trial board was white. This was the largest mass mutiny trial in U.S. naval history. The defense's primary strategy was to argue that what these men had done did not qualify as mutiny and to try to have that charge dismissed. Lieutenant Gerald E. Veltman, who led the defense, used a definition from Winthrop's military law and precedents, which defined mutiny as, quote, unlawful opposition or resistance to or defiance of superior military authority with a deliberate attempt to usurp, subvert, or override the same. He argued that the men had simply refused to follow an order, that they had not tried to usurp, subvert, or override anything. He also reiterated that many of the men said that they had never actually been given an actual order. The prosecution countered with a different definition from the same source, which read, quote, collective insubordination or simultaneous disobedience of a lawful order by two or more persons is an endeavor to make a revolt or mutiny. So if two people refuse to work, that's mutiny. The trial board ultimately decided that this second definition was the one that stood, and they did not dismiss the mutiny charge. Future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall was the chief counsel for the NAACP at the time, and he arrived in San Francisco on October 10th. He observed the trial for 12 days and interviewed all of the 50 defendants. The NAACP also held a press conference at which Thurgood Marshall said, quote, This is not 50 men on trial for mutiny. This is the Navy on trial for its whole vicious policy toward Negroes. Negroes in the Navy don't mind loading ammunition. They just want to know why they are the only ones doing the loading. Marshall also noted, quote, they have told me they were willing to go to jail to get a change of duty because of their terrific fear of explosives, but they had no idea that verbal expression of their fear constituted mutiny. Afterward, the NAACP also published a pamphlet publicizing this whole case, and the fact that the men 
had not been refusing to work, period. They had just been refusing to work without some changes that might protect their lives. By the end of the proceedings, the defense had noted that the men on trial had been respectful and had obeyed every other order they had been given, something that was acknowledged by officers on the stand. They had also gotten expert testimony from a Navy psychiatrist who had argued that the explosion was so traumatic that the men could reasonably be expected to refuse their orders out of sheer self-preservation. This psychiatrist, Lieutenant P.H. Pembroke, also pointed out that no sort of psychiatric assistance had been offered to any of the enlisted men in the days that followed this horrific disaster. Chaplain J.M. Flowers had also taken the stand and said that he had spoken to some of the men about trying to put aside their fears to help their fellows, using the analogy of being in the same foxhole as someone else. He reported that one of the sailors had answered, quote, in the foxholes, a man has a chance to fight back. Throughout all of this, the defense did not try to build a case that the men had been the targets of discrimination based on their race, but it is clear that the men themselves believed that they had been. The NAACP, which had existed for 35 years at this point, thought the same. And it is possible that at least some of the men on trial thought that their work stoppage might lead to civil rights gains within the Navy, beyond just the safety issues. But if they did, that wasn't something that they talked about at the trial. From the prosecution's standpoint, the men who were on trial had repeatedly refused to follow orders, and they had encouraged others to do the same, and that constituted mutiny. The Port Chicago 50 were all found guilty of mutiny on October 24, 1944, after about 80 minutes of deliberation. That included a lunch break. That was less than two minutes of deliberation per charge. Initially, all 50 of them were sentenced to 15 years in prison, including hard labor. But ultimately, some of the sentences were reduced because of the men's youth and their lack of previous conduct issues. More than half of them were under 21 years old. In the end, 10 of them, including the ones who were described as ringleaders, were sentenced to 15 years, and that included Seaman Small. 35 were sentenced to between 10 and 12 years, and the remaining were sentenced to eight years. They were all incarcerated at Terminal Island Disciplinary Barracks in San Pedro, California. Meanwhile, Navy leadership maintained that race was not a factor in decisions at Port Chicago or in the mutiny proceedings. But in the immediate aftermath of the disaster, they had noted that the all-black loading details could, quote, create an appearance of discrimination. Admiral Wright had recommended that white details relieve the black loading crews from time to time. And in the end, two white units were assigned to Port Chicago when it was up and running again. Thurgood Marshall filed an appeal brief in April of 1945, and by this point, the NAACP had been covering the disaster and the trial in its magazine, The Crisis, and Eleanor Roosevelt had sent a copy of the NAACP's pamphlet on the incident to Secretary of the Navy James V. Forrestal, encouraging him to take, quote, special care in the case. Although Marshall's request for an appeal was denied, the Navy did re-examine one aspect of the case. The prosecution's case had included hearsay evidence, which had been admitted. The trial board considered what the case would have looked like without that evidence on June 12, 1945. In the end, the Navy upheld the convictions and sentences. The Port Chicago 50 were the only people who faced charges after this disaster. There was never really any examination of whether the officers' actions or the Navy's policies had played a role. Yeah, that hearsay evidence is basically that some of the officers said that they had heard the enlisted men encouraging each other not to go back to work, but none of them could pinpoint any particular person that they heard this from, but that was still considered admissible. 
1945, the Navy started desegregating its ranks, including announcing that training facilities would be integrated in June of that year. Black crews were assigned to a few small combat ships as well. Then that December, Secretary Forrestal announced that, quote, in the administration of naval personnel, no differentiation shall be made because of color. This was motivated not just by the Port Chicago case, but also by other racial conflicts within the Navy, including a riot involving Black Seabees and white Marines on Guam in December of 1944. The Port Chicago 50 remained incarcerated until the end of World War II. First, their sentences were reduced by a year, and then in January of 1946, all but three were released and returned to the Navy. Two of the men who were not released were in the hospital at the time, and one was not released because of his conduct while incarcerated. From there, they were sent overseas to work for a year as rehabilitation. The CBs who had been part of the riot on Guam went through a similar process. After that, they were discharged under honorable conditions— That's not the same thing as an honorable discharge, and some of the men maintained that it kept them from being able to collect veterans' benefits afterwards, which is something that the Navy has denied. The mutiny convictions still stood, though, and that made it hard for a lot of the men to find work once they returned to civilian life. A lot of them also talked about carrying a sense of shame and uh, anger about it for the rest of their life. On February 27, 1946, the Navy banned segregation and formally made black sailors, quote, eligible for all types of assignments, in all ratings, in all facilities, and in all ships. More than two years later, on July 26, 1948, President Harry S. Truman signed Executive Order 9981, which desegregated the U.S. Armed Forces. The Navy was already compliant with the order when Truman signed it. That doesn't mean that there was no discrimination or racism in the Navy, just that the Navy had already complied with the technical points of the order. Eventually, the military facility at Port Chicago was repaired, and it became an even bigger port for munitions loading. But the town of Port Chicago was determined to be too close to the port for safety. This led the Navy to file a series of lawsuits petitioning to have it torn down. The Navy was finally successful in 1968, and it purchased all the property through eminent domain and then raised the buildings. The base was later renamed Concord Naval Weapons Station, and now it's Military Ocean Terminal Concord. Although the Port Chicago disaster was a major news story when it happened and led to protests and advocacy on behalf of the men on trial and black sailors in general, for decades afterward, information about it was classified. This secrecy contributed to a conspiracy theory that the explosion was caused by a nuclear device. This theory grew after a document called History of the 10,000-Ton Gadget was found in a box of photography supplies at a rummage sale in 1980. That box was reportedly donated by a man who had worked at Los Alamos, and the document describes a mathematical model for a nuclear detonation and ends with step 11, quote, ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion. So the logical explanation for this is that after the disaster, scientists from Los Alamos came to Port Chicago to study the effects of an explosion that was similar in power to what they were trying to develop. That definitely happened. Captain William Parsons, ordnance director at Los Alamos, arrived on July 20th and submitted a memo summarizing his findings on July 24th. His memorandum cites several eyewitnesses as reporting that a column of fire rose up and then mushroomed out from the explosion. 
But the conspiracy theory maintains that, quote, typical Port Chicago fashion is not a reference to a mushroom cloud created by the accidental detonation of conventional weapons that was as powerful as a nuclear blast. Instead, it is supposedly a reference to a mushroom cloud created by an actual nuclear detonation in Port Chicago and then covered up. Yeah, some people go so far as to say that it was an actual intentional nuclear detonation, basically bombing a port on purpose to see what the effects would be. But there's never been any evidence of any other, like, indication of nuclear activity, any of the types of post-nuclear explosion issues you would have. No, the 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 person who has been the biggest uh, advocate of this whole conspiracy theory wrote a whole book about it, piecing all kinds of stuff together. But, like, it's one of those things that's so far-fetched that there's not a lot of historians that are, like, rebutting it because it's <laughs> right. so far, so far off the the realm of what's reasonable or imaginable. Um, but, like, a lot of nuclear scientists have said, no, this, like, part of the argument has to be whether there was enough nuclear material available to make a right. bomb of this type in 1944. And a lot of nuclear scientists are like, no, there wasn't. Um, people have also noted, like we when we did our uh, our uh, podcasts about the the thousand cranes mm-hmm. and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like we talked about how the like, the nuclear after effects went on for years and years, and these uh, spikes and all kinds of cancers and right. things like that. And there's um, no radiation sickness associated with Port Chicago, to the best no, of my knowledge. No, yeah. um, especially not among all of the people in the town who were a mile away and. Would have had that if that were the case. Yeah, it would have. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, it's, I can totally see how these pieces of, these like little pieces of data, like the fact that it says Port Chicago in that document and um, the huge magnitude of the explosion, like I can see how people would piece these things together and draw that conclusion. But at the same time, Especially the idea that the United States would have intentionally bombed one of its own ports during wartime as an experiment. like <laughs> Yeah, that's a little bit of a long walk. Yeah, a mission-critical port during wartime. Like, it was how munitions were getting, like, the vast majority of munitions were getting to the Pacific. In the 1990s, the Navy reviewed the Port Chicago case, and on January 6, 1994, the Board for Correction of Naval Records acknowledged that racism was present in the Navy and at Port Chicago in 1944, but maintained that it did not play a part in the events that transpired. The Secretary of Defense at the time was William J. Perry, who said, quote, sailors are required to obey the orders of their superiors, even if those orders subject them to life-threatening danger. In 1999, President Bill Clinton pardoned Freddie Meeks, who had been part of the Port Chicago 50. Meeks was one of a very few survivors still living at the time, and he was the only one to apply for a presidential pardon. In the words of Joe Small, back in 1994, when the Navy stood by their convictions, quote, We don't want a pardon, because that means you're guilty, but we forgive you. We want the decision set aside and reimbursement of all lost pay. In 2009, the Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial was dedicated. It's part of the national park system, but it's also on an active military base. So if you want to visit there, you have to have advanced reservations and a government issue ID uh, and go through a security check to enter. The security is a lot tighter than at most other monuments of, of a similar sort because it is on an active base. 
there are a lot of moments of uh, holding back growling and expletives in that episode. Yeah. It, um, it, people have been asking us to talk about this for a really long time. And um, because it is so similar to the Halifax disaster in terms of the nature of the explosion and the damage that it caused. Like, Halifax was a lot more destructive in terms of how much property was destroyed and how many people were killed because the Halifax disaster happened, like, right there in Halifax, and there were a lot of populated buildings immediately around the area and, like, a lot more people, a lot more civilians there at the docks. But Port Chicago was not nearly as well populated, and then the the shape of the landscape stopped the spread of the explosion from going as far. So, like, the death toll is not as staggering as in Halifax, but if you look at the pictures, it's really similar in terms of things just being flattened. And one of the things that was frustrated in researching it is how, how like, there were these clear, discriminatory, segregated tiers through the whole entire thing that played out in the same way as, like, so many other segregated situations that we have talked about on the show. Uh, but unlike some of them that have been later investigated, like, we've talked about like a lot of... knowledge. Yeah, we've <laughs> talked about a lot of incidents that, like, when they happened, it was clear that, like, racism was a factor. And then 50 years later, uh, somebody will go back through the whole records and have, like, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission or something like that and say, okay, this is the documentation of how this played out and how discrimination played a part in it. And with this particular thing, uh, it's been more like, yeah, there discrimination existed, but it didn't really affect there this at all. There was racism, but that wasn't part of this. <laughs> yeah, that's... It kind of comes across that way. Frustrating. Yeah. Uh, uh, hopefully in a more upbeat zone. Do you have some listener mail? I do. It's from Katrina. It is a little more... Uh, it is also about a disaster, but it is more upbeat. And it says, my name is Katrina. I am a longtime listener from Perth, Australia. Just dropping you a line after I listened to the General Slocum disaster. My little tidbit of trivia is much more lighthearted than the episode, though, and it's all to do with cork. Inferior cork is the reason why most wine bottles in Australia have metal caps. Apparently, there was a war between some European wine labels and Australian labels around the 1970s. This was as the Australian wine industry started making some waves and getting noticed to try to block this these new upcomers. Uh, some of the older European brands convinced cork suppliers to send inferior corks to the Australian market. So the wineries in Australia were forced to invent a new closure, enter the screw cap. I think this is also why we have wine in a bag, although I'm not entirely sure on that one. Unfortunately, I can't remember the documentary in which I saw this, so my details may be wrong, but and I cannot send you something with more information. But either way, it's a cute story. Keep up the good work, ladies. I'm always impressed with the sensitivity and enthusiasm to approach each topic, especially the ones that reveal histories that have been hidden for so long due to racism, sexism, and homophobia. Uh, and then she goes on with some podcast suggestions. Uh, your friend in history, Katrina. Thank you so much for this email, uh, Katrina. I did not go through and, like, verify the trajectory of screw caps and cork, but the idea of needing a different type of closure for the bottle because of poor quality cork is definitely a thing. Like, in more recent years, there have been worldwide cork shortages, uh, and that is why a lot more, a lot of uh, wine bottles and things now, instead of having a cork closure, will have, a, like, a more rubber stopper or a screw cap or something like that. So, uh, thank you, Katrina, for sending a more lighthearted uh, aspect of poor quality cork. 
If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missing History. That is where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and find show notes about the episodes Holly and I have worked on together and a searchable archive of every episode ever. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 